0: Past Ball Show, brought to you by JohnPLE.com.
1: What the f you think is my opinion of it? I think it was f- f-
2: Put
3: that in. I don't f- So the tribe drops its third this district, six to one to the Rangers, For the Indians, one run on, let's say, one hit. That's all we got, one goddamn hit.
1: Ever
0: put out in the 100 years of the sell the team oh yeah welcome back john pielli passball show mtr radio network ready for hour two of the program today and we're going to start off by playing an interview i recorded with former major league catcher todd green and todd green came up with the uh los angeles angels organization i believe when they were still in anaheim and was known for his bat he put up some phenomenal numbers in the minor leagues you know made a transition from outfield to catcher and then came to the major leagues, was a serviceable backup catcher for several years. And there's a lot of interesting things we get into. We get into his experience on the 2001 New York Yankees team that lost the World Series to the Arizona Diamondbacks, and a lot of interesting things. So hopefully, you guys enjoy this spot with former major league catcher Todd Green, who played for the Angels or Yankees the Toronto Blue Jays, and a couple other teams over the course of his 10-year Major League career. Good afternoon. This is John Pielli.
1: I'm here with former Major League catcher, Todd Green. Todd, what's going on, man? Good
2: much, uh, How are you
1: doing? Uh, doing pretty good. Doing pretty good. And, you know, obviously, Todd, you had a, you know, a pretty, pretty good playing career as a catcher. You uh, actually uh, came up as an outfielder, if I'm not mistaken, right? Yep,
2: I was drafted and signed as an outfielder by the Angels and uh, played my first... Uh... My first season in the minor leagues in outfielder, and then uh, the, uh, the Angels converted me to to catching position
1: in instructional league in 1993. Right, and then uh, you know, of course, you know, you end up going through the minors. You had a couple really good seasons. 1994, playing for Lake Elsinore. Uh, you know, you hit 35 home runs. A year later, playing in Double A AA and Triple A, you ended up hitting 40 home runs. Tell us a little bit about that time, and you know, your development through the minor league system.
2: Well, I was all, I mean, I could always hit. That, that was really never a question with the, with the position change. It, it's kind of what held me in those leagues long enough to, uh, uh, to put up those type of numbers. I mean, I, I was a 22-year-old kid uh, signing out of college and, and then uh, playing high in high at 22. Offensively, I was definitely advanced for that league. And just running in a new position kind of kept me there all year. I knew that going into it. Joe Madden was our farm director. And then, conforming. No matter how you hit, you got to learn how to catch. And so, uh, then next year was kind of the same thing. Went to a uh, really good hitter, park in Midland, Texas, and to, to start out the first two months of, of the season in AA. And went up to AAA in Vancouver, not a good hitting bar, and uh, I was able to hold my own at that level, too. So, pretty, pretty fast rise, considering that the position change. But, um, you know, hitting was always... Kind of what carried me and serving as what had me
1: to the big leagues. Yeah, and you mentioned, you know, your ability to hit the whole time. Now, what did, what did you think, or uh, from your own perspective, what was the biggest transition to becoming a catcher? What was the thing that came, the I guess, the hardest to pick up or took the longest to pick up to be a catcher? You
2: know, you're going to be surprised when I tell you, but, but just catching the ball. I mean, it, it, it you know, the guys that were throwing 92 96 with and 96 would stink and the balls would cut and. and just being able to catch the ball and, and present it for the umpire to be called a strike is actually more difficult than I ever thought. Um, I had never caught my whole life until, until I went back there in, in, in instructional league. So uh, you, I didn't realize how hard it was just to catch the ball. And so uh, we went into progression. I learned how to catch the ball first, then we worked on blocking, then I learned how to throw the ball properly. So arm strength was never an issue until I, got, until I had my first surgery, but. Um, just actually, just learning how to catch the ball and present the ball properly was really was, was
1: like the hardest part of, of it. Yeah, and of course. You know, once again, it's John Piali. I'm here with Todd Green, and yeah, you, know, you, you end up you know making your major league debut in 1996, and then you you know, you play a couple of years with the Angels. Uh, tell us a little bit about you know your experience in the major league with the Angels, and was it everything you expected from coming from the minors? Yeah, you know it, it was it was uh, obviously.
2: Uh, uh, you know, a dream come true, maybe to the big leagues, uh, you know, from a uh, little town in Georgia, and, and to be able to, uh, to step on the major league field and, and, and to be honest to look up in the stands and, and uh, see the, the, the enjoyment that you put on your mom and dad's face and, and see my wife, uh, you know, how proud they are. It's a pretty cool moment uh, to, to finally make it to the big leagues. And uh, with the club that you asked you develops you and bring you to the big is a pretty cool deal, and it was hard leaving when they released me in 2000. You know, I feel like those guys I came up with well, my brothers, uh, were my brothers—we're talking about Gary Anderson, Jim Evans, and Darren Erstad, and, and uh, Jason Dixon, guys like that—who came up through the system with me, George Arias, for a short time with the Angels as well. It was tough. Um, it was kind of my first introduction to the business of baseball, put it that way, but. Um, certainly rebound there. and having, having a
1: decent career, I think. Yeah, no question about it, and of course you end up in 2001 after uh, playing some time with the Toronto Blue Jays in 2000, you join the New York Yankees, and this is a team that's coming off of uh, three, three world, four World Series titles. In five years, uh, obviously, you know, you, pro- you probably uh, think you have a good chance to play for a winner, and then you end up making a postseason that year. Tell us a little bit about your experience playing in a postseason with the 2001 Yankees. Yeah, it was an incredible year, John. You know, it was obviously a
2: tough year being a Yankee. That's what happened in September 11th right of that year. So, it um, really rocked the city out. Uh, it rocked the whole country. rid of the world, uh, in fact. But... Uh, being a Yankee at that time was um, it was a was a tough was a tough time, but it was a cool deal to to, to you know, walk into a firehouse and, and try to try to make a kid whose father passed away um, in, in the World Trade Center um, make them smile again, and, and, and to be able to wear the Yankee pinstripes and, and to make people smile and enjoy life again, and, and uh, try to give them a little a little reason to help to move on was a, was a cruel deal um, for me and then obviously professionally and personally uh, to be able to play in the, the postseason and and make it to the world series and be a couple hours away from winning a world series uh, championship was obviously the pinnacle and the greatest thing that i dreamed about as a little boy so to be able to experience that was uh certainly one of the, the greatest years professionally of my life for sure
1: yeah, and of course, in a, you know, in a World Series that year, you you, know, you get a couple at bats, you, you end up getting a double, you score a run. Uh, did that that hit, that double you got in the World Series, did that feel like any more important than any of your hits during, like, a regular season game? Well, it was pretty cool. I mean, look,
2: I, I'm very happy to say I'm a 500, you know, career hitter in the World Series and I'm hitting 1,000 off Randy Johnson in the World Series with a with double, but but. I would rather have never had that an bat and won the World Series. So it's, it's kind of, uh, you know, bittersweet. The fact that I got in the game was because we were getting killed, and uh, I'm very proud to have been able to get a hit um, in that situation. But I'd rather have never gotten that an bat and won the World Series. So it's kind of bittersweet.
1: No, it's understandable. I mean, you look at the way that World Series panned out, and certainly a World Series it could have gone either way went down to game seven, you know, the last inning. I mean, obviously, a lot of, uh, you know, a lot, a lot was on the line there, and just, you know, it was, kind of, it was kind of crazy the way it turned out. It turns out to be really one of the better World Series that were ever played.
2: Yeah, I think it was. I mean, you know, uh, I think even MLB Network and a couple other, I guess, Jen maybe has it raised in the top three. Um, you know, I was a. A big Braves fan growing up, so I certainly remember the, the Braves and Twins World Series. I think the '75 World Series was great, and I put hours from 2001 up there um, with the with the greatest World mm-hmm. Series of all time. And, and certainly, considering the fact that it went seven games, and the Arizona Diamondbacks mm-hmm. just absolutely manhandled, it was pretty much. The whole s- first six games, I have no idea how we won those three games in New York, but we did. And, and it had to have it come down to the greatest relief pitcher of all time, and he actually blew a save, and um, w- which is so uh, unlikely. Certainly, um, for from a baseball fan, next to the great World Series. From a personal standpoint, I wish I wish Mariano could have could have not broken so many bats and, and had those balls put in on him, but. You know, that's
1: no, know, and best things happen. Yeah, and I tell you, it was kind of flukish the way it happened. And you know, uh, you know, I guess you got to just put it in your pocket and take it for what it is. But you know, once again, John Pielli here, former major league catcher Todd Green. Now, you know, well, you, you actually, you actually hold the record. You have uh, the the most the most home runs hit by somebody who had more home runs than walks. Number one, is that something that you are aware
2: of? You know, I wasn't aware of that until I became a major league coach with Tampa in 2009. I was aware of a couple other things, that I'm not proud of. Like, I think I had to shift most of the bats in major league history before I got my first triple. <laughs> and you know, I certainly certainly, uh, I know with with a certain amount of the bats, I I have, I have more home runs than walks. So, the one thing I would say, John, is. Uh, I got to the big league swinging the bat, and I certainly wasn't going to walk my way into staying in the big league. So when I played, once I became a backup exclusively, and I only got to play once every five days, I wasn't going up there trying to work their bat and get some time. I was walking up there trying to do some damage, and power was what got me to the big leagues. It was what's going to keep me in the big league. So when I got my four bats every five days, I was trying to hit a home run, and I wasn't I wasn't looking just to get on base, and. and uh, Cloud
1: up the basis for sure yeah, very well said Todd and of course, in you know two thousand two two thousand three with Texas and two thousand four with Colorado uh you know you you put up numbers that were pro- probably as good if not better than any other backup catcher in baseball, you know you hit ten home runs each one of those years, and you know pretty much what you just said you know you went up there just looking for a big hit every time up, yeah.
2: Well, there's you know, great starting catchers, and I think during, their, during those, that, that time you were you know, referring to, I think I was always in the top 10 or you know, 12 or 15 home runs, and obviously, I think the most of bats I received in any of those years was about 180 at-bats, 180 plate appearances, so, um, again, I was proud of, of my my major career, I, I think the reason why you see some, I knew exactly who I was as a player, and, and I was comfortable being who I was, and When I went to the plate, you know, I I would compete and I would would play the situational game if it presented itself. But if not, I mean, there there was no secret. I was trying to hit hit the ball out of the ballpark. That's what what I did, and that's what I was getting to play for and and, uh, took pride in it.
1: Yeah, no question about it. And, of course, you know, in 2006, you're playing with the Giants. You end up being involved in a home plate collision with Prince Fielder. And, you know, you're able to get through the season, but apparently you had some uh, structural damage to your shoulder. Um, you know, unfortunately, that was something that probably led to the end of your career, right?
2: Yeah, that was pretty much it. you know, and, and I believe it was May fourth, 2006. I'll never forget the day, uh, you know, Prince Fielder uh, ran me over. Um, certainly was not a dirty play, Prince was a kid I threw batting practice to when he was 13 years old when I played with his daddy in Anaheim and so certainly have a lot of respect for Prince and respect the way he plays the game which is hard I mean he was out by 20 feet he's not supposed to just run into and out so he was playing hard it was it was a great play it just happened that I got hurt and, and uh I ruptured the super spinatus and the in my in my shoulder which is the, the, the middle two rotator cuff muscles and and somehow uh the I was able to play. I talked to the Giants and we knew what we were dealing with. We knew that there's no way possible you can throw a baseball without. But somehow I was able to do it. And and I asked the Giants to just let me play till I can anymore. I, I didn't want to end my career in an operating table. I wanted to end it on the field. And if I ended on the field, um, and then I couldn't do it anymore, fine. But as long as I can physically do it, regardless of how bad it hurts, I want to do it. And, and uh, they allowed me that opportunity. Um, I ended up having, I think, one of my best averages. I couldn't finish my swing. That's why it hit me homers that year. Um, but as far as the batting, shortened shortening up to swing. Um, I was a pretty, pretty productive hitter for the Giants that season. And, uh, then signing with the Padres in 07. And then, like, the second or third day of spring training, I made it throw to second base. And they shoulder dislocated. And that was it. So, um definitely stems from the collision, but I was able to make it almost another four years before I
1: had to have the, uh, the reconstruction surgery. Yeah, and I'll tell you, you know, we talk about, and you, know, you hear people talk about it all the time, about the collisions with catchers at home plate, and, you know, there's there's obviously a strong group or contingent that wants to outlaw, stuff like that. What's, what's your opinion about, you know, the home plate collisions? Is it something that, uh, you know, baseball should over time, you know, get away from, or you think it's just part of the game?
2: I think it's part of the game. You know, uh, uh, I had my experiences getting ran over, um, and I also ran over guys. I mean, Um, I think I, I can't remember the year, 97 98, I 98. I ran over Terry Steinbach, who, who was one of my, my idols looking up to when, when I first started catching in 94. And I think I separated his shoulder. And, and obviously, you know, I felt bad about it, but I was trying to win the game, and, and it's part of, most of the time, John, when the catcher gets ran over, as is the case in mine, it was my teammate's fault that I got ran over the way I did. It, it, was, it was a bad relay uh, from, from those that just got, you know, and uh, threw me into pants where I could not protect myself. And, and so it wasn't the base runner's fault. It was my teammate's fault that I got hurt because uh, the throw put me in a position where I could not protect myself. Most catchers get in time to protect themselves. Can get hit and it'll look like you're getting hammered, but it won't actually hurt. And, and uh, I didn't have the opportunity to protect myself in that p- particular throw. And, and if you want to lay blame on someone, it's not Prince Fielder, it's Jose, just guy, you know, so throw me into them. So um, I believe it's part of the game. And uh, if guys continue to get hurt, um, don't catch. I mean, catching is not for everybody. You know, it's, it's a. Uh, I'm not saying you gotta be you know, the smartest person in the world, but um, to get back there and put that gear on takes a special, tough individual. And I never knew that until I did it, and, and uh, so I embraced it. I loved it being every part of it. I believe I know the game today because I was a catcher, um, and um, I think catchers see the game a little differently than most people. So I think you just leave the way it is. It's part of it. it, it it's. Being a catcher is a unique thing, and um, uh, I don't want to see any rules change
1: on the collision part. All right, Todd, I want to thank you for having some time today. I appreciate you being part of the program, and hopefully I can speak to you sometime again soon. Hey,
0: Todd. Hopefully you guys enjoyed that spot there with Todd Green, and of course Todd talks about his experience in the 2001 World Series, and of course his career just about ending on that collision that he had with Prince Fielder. And, you know, the one thing that I thought was interesting that we got into, we talked about, you know, with a catcher, and you figure a lot of catchers would be against the home plate collisions and wanted to kind of outlaw it. Todd Green, you know, and I believe a lot of other catchers feel the same way, that it's part of the game. And sometimes you deal with a situation that's part of the game, things happen, you never know, you know, people could get hurt with everything. But, you know, a rough play, roughing a catcher up in a situation when you want to win the game could be the difference between a win and a loss and I think that's one side of the argument when we talk about uh, having to outlaw catcher collisions and throwing a player out of the game yada 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 making them out automatically you know this is one side you have to consider when you're trying to win a game you're going to do everything you can to win a game nobody's going to go out there and eliminate any type of contact between a base runner and a middle infielder trying to turn a double play and I'm all for the game being safe and making it as safe as possible but you know, listen, I think eliminating catcher collisions is going to be going too far. So I, I do think that has to be looked at. But once again, John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. What we're going to do is we're going to take our first break at a hour, be back with a lot more stuff going on after this.
1: Hey, guys and gals. Want to have a great time dining out while watching your favorite sport on
3: HD TV? Then come on down to Hooters of Princeton, New Jersey, located on Route 1 South in Trenton in the Mercer Mall. Hi, I'm Deja. And I'm Corey. These are great deals all week, bound to whet your appetite and satisfy your hunger. Check out our Bunday Mondays, where you can have a delicious cheeseburger and fries for only $6.99. On Tuesdays, we have all-you-can-eat wings all day, just 12 dollars per person or $10.99 for boneless. On Wednesdays, you can get 10 boneless wings and an order of fries for just $6.99. On Saturday, kids eat free for every meal ordered by an accompanying adult, and the meals are served on Frisbee. We have half price appetizers from 10 p.m. until closed every day. You can then enjoy your cold draft beer with our mouth-watering crab clusters for only $5. Remember, we are located in Trenton on Route 1 South in the Mercer Mall, just south of Quaker Bridge Road. For any information, call us at 609 520 That's 609-520-9464. So come on in and watch your favorite football team while having a great meal, served up by the nicest and the hottest girls anywhere. Hope, Hope to see you there! This is Lady E, one of the many broadcasters at MTR Radio. If you're listening to mtrradio.com, fantastic. ¡Qué bueno! But if you want to take us with you, we have an app for your smartphone that lets you listen to us 24-7. Just go to Google Play on your Android device or the iPhone App Store and download our app, MTR Radio.
0: Welcome back. John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio. Now we're going to keep the program going by playing an interview I recorded with former Pittsburgh Pirates, New York Yankees, and Boston Red Sox outfielder D.H. Mike Easler. And one of the things we get into with this interview is we talk about Easler becoming a D.H. really in a time in the mid-80s, the early to mid-80s when designated hitters started to really become a power position in a lineup. Remember we talked about last week with Ron Bloomberg how the designated hitter, nobody really knew what it was. And he was kind of used as a glorified pinch hitter, a chance to give the same guy multiple at-bats in a game. But it wasn't until the 80s where the designated hitter started to become a very integral part of an American League team's lineup. And Mike Easler was one of the guys that certainly was brought in and used for that distinct ability. And Mike Easler had a very good career as part of the 1979 Pittsburgh Pirates team that won the World Series and spent many years kind of getting himself to a point where he could get his chance and once he got his chance at 79 and at 80 and through a better part of the 80s he was known as the hitman because that's all he could do was hit he could go out there and just knock the ball all over the ballpark was not necessarily the best defensive outfielder though he was used there throughout his career even after the years that he started DHing. so you know he had some good years with the Red Sox in 84 and 85 was traded to the Yankees for Don Baylor. Be, during the beginning of the 1986 season and of course Eastler who was part of the Red Sox in 85 was not part of the Red Sox that won the American League pennant in 1986 so hopefully you guys enjoy this interview with former Major League Outfielder designated hitter Mike Eastler.
1: Hi this is John Pielli I'm here with former Major League Outfielder Mike Eastler Mike what's going on man? I'm um, doing pretty good I out mean, um, just kind of
2: I'm not retired, but I'm still involved in
1: baseball in different capacities of teaching kids and working with kids. Yes. Now, before I ask you some questions about your playing career, um, you know, talk a little bit about what you're doing now. You have a you have a clinic, if I'm not mistaken. Well, What I do is I go
2: into a batting facility and I I kind of consult with you guys and teach them how to teach the kids. And you know, we have clinics at times and. um, you know, I teach a lot of techniques on hitting and other uh, things like that. So I kind of help coaches, you know, teach them how to teach the kids and how to work with the kids and on keep them in a good balanced hitting position and just how to hit baseball hard.
1: <laughs> yeah, that's awesome, man. And it's good to see you kind of giving them back and showing, you know, some of the some of the things that obviously led to you having a successful baseball career. Yeah, I was with the Mets um,
2: two years ago and I got to for the ball, so I was kind of on a disabled list. You I've been out the last two years from pro ball, but I was a chip away heading for the past four years then I got, I and mean, knew I got to be able to ball, so I'm kind of recuperating with that. I had a surgery on my
1: lower back in you know, January, so I'm still trying to make a comeback. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, listen, I, and I'm sure you, sure you end up getting yourself back out there. And of course, Mike, you know, you started out, you know, you had some years in the Houston Astros organization. Uh, tell us a little bit about. You know, you coming into baseball, kind of coming up through the minors and making your major league debut?
2: Well, really, Dan, it was uh, really a tough world for me. I signed out of high school. At 18 years old, I was the 14th draft choice out of uh, Cleveland, Ohio. Went to Benedictine high school out there, Catholic high school, all-boys school, and um, I was drafted, so I begged my father to sign because that's all I wanted to do was play baseball, Uh, but it took me a long time. It was like climbing the grass mountain, so I was... Up and down, up and down. I ended up spending 10 years in the modern league, 10 years to win of baseball before I actually made it to stay in 1979 with the Pittsburgh
1: Pirates. Yeah, and of course, 1979 is very, a you know, very, very big year for the Pirates to end up winning the World Series that year. Uh, tell us a little bit about playing for that team and then, you know, of course, culminating with the World Series championship.
2: Well, once I got out of the minor league, I was determined not to go back again. So I was um, basically in 79, I was used as a pinch hitter. And it was gonna be a tough role to, you know, to, to get used to, but I was used to playing every day in the minor leagues in winter baseball, but I got it to it, you know, because I said that's my only way to stand a the big is a pinch hit, so I ended up turning one of be the best pinch on the team. I ended up hitting, like, two pinch home runs against the Nets, and that's when my nickname came about, the Man. And then finally in 1980, I got a chance to play, and I was like a hungry dog out there, and I ended up um, hitting three weeks I Yeah, yeah, that yeah, it was a big year. Yeah, I had a pretty good year they, Well they finally let me lose. They finally untied me. They, they let me lose, but they let me out my game. And I uh, just really had a great year that year in nineteen eighty and then uh, I only yeah I made all thirty in nineteen eighty one. Dallas Green was the manager and he uh, picked me as an extra and he didn't know and I tell Dallas Green every time I see him or we'll think about him, I'm grateful I have given our words for you know, we'll making that all sexy. It's the only one I made in my um
1: in my career. Yeah, and of course, John Piala here with Mike Giesler. Now, you know, of course, you know, after that, you know, you ended up having a handful of very good seasons, you know, with the Pirates and then you end up with the, with the Red Sox and the Yankees. You know, tell us, tell us a little bit about what you were able to do to kind of maintain yourself as an everyday player at that point because, you know, obviously before that it was kind of a scrap and claw trying to, you know, fight to, you know, get a job in the major leagues. And that, now you established yourself. Well, how were you able to maintain it for as long as you did?
2: Well, the best thing happened to me, I think, is when I really got traded to Boston because, you know, I wasn't the greatest, i I wasn't the worst, but I wasn't the greatest, I didn't have a lot of speed, I had an average marginal arm, but I could really hit the baseball, you know, and I really worked on hitting it. When I got traded from, um, from Pittsburgh to Boston, um, Ralph Haupt was the manager, and he told me, he said, you're my D.A., he said, you're going to get six at bats. you're going to play as many games as you help." and he stepped behind his phone, you know, his phone to me and um, I ended up getting a lot of it back that year, and I put together a really good year, in Boston 313, with um, 27 home runs and a great lineup with Jim Wright, Wade balls, glad Evans, uh, You know, Bill Buckner was over there, uh, you know, we just had a great ball club, a great offensive club, Tony Armit. And, uh, but um, Fenway Park was kind of made for my, my swings, and all the, you know, inside out here that I hit a lot of ball to opposite field. So when I got to Finway, it actually made me a better hitter, and that's what really established myself as a pretty good hitter when
1: I got to Finway Park. Yeah, and of course, you know, you touched on becoming a designated hitter, and i tell you, you know, the time that you became a full-time DH was really the time that a lot of teams in Major League Baseball started coming up to this idea of, hey, if we get a power bat in the middle of our lineup and we run them out there as a DH, that could be an asset to our team. You know, before that, you know, when, you know, the designated hitter came in in 1973, you know, a lot of people were kind of looking at it as just a glorified pinch hitter, you know, a guy to just get a couple extra at bats to. Now the designated hitter is starting to become prominent in Major League Baseball, and, you know, you were really at the forefront of it. No, that's definitely
2: right, you know. I mean, it just really helped my career. People asked me, what would I like to be? You know, the am my point of view,
1: Obviously, you've seen what it's become now. Every, every American League team needs to have that guy in the middle of their lineup to be their DH. You know, you don't see too many teams that just kind of just scrap and claw with, you know, let's say like a you know, punch and judy hitter just to get them a couple extra bats. Now it's become, you know, an absolute power position.
2: a designated
1: hitters, you have the game. Yeah, no question about it. Once again, John Piala here former Major League outfielder, designated hitter Mike Eastler. Now, you know, 1985 comes, you know, you play with Boston that year after, you know, coming into the beginning of 86, you're flopped over to the Yankees for Don Baylor. Uh, tell us a little bit about how you felt about that. Obviously, the results of the season probably wouldn't make you feel as well because, you know, the Yankees struggled a little bit but, you know, the Red Sox ended up winning the pennant
2: that year. it happened in spring training and I was really swinging as well. Um, I thought I was really uh, you know, a, you know, locked in with the red shot but you know, they changed managers. They had Don Don going to go into Boston and, and I think him and um, Don Baylor had a Don Mayer had a good relationship so I think he opted get Donnie you know, over there for leadership roles and, you know, being experienced and he playoffs off before and which I accepted it, you know, and it didn't make a difference. But when I got traded the h I think I thought I went to heaven because everybody wants to with the h You know
1: Yeah, definitely.
2: And, um, the, and yeah, to end of my career in New York, to me, that was uh, really one of the high points of my career. I, mean, I really enjoyed my time in New York. I, I did pretty good, and, um, you know, I had some little controversy in there, but that's New York. But overall, I think I really enjoyed my time in New York. Actually, I'm just kind of proud of myself that, you know, that uh, George Steinbrenner and the organization
1: picked me up. Yeah, no question. That's going to lead me to my next question. I always got to ask this. Anybody that had an association with the Yankees had a chance to play, you know, with the boss, George Steinbrenner, as the owner. What was your feeling about having this guy, uh, you know, as an owner, a guy that's very hands-on, obviously he's going to let you know how you feel, wants to win more than anybody. But, you know, what, it's a little bit about George Steinbrenner. Well, I think he was
2: just a, it was a challenge player that was greater to the A.C. than the one they paid you pretty good. And he expected excellence, simple as that. He wanted you to go out there and be a blue collar type player, go out there and grind it, work hard, and uh, ultimately he wanted the ball club to win. So, you know, he put together pieces, he put money to, uh, you know, to the ball club and brought in some of the best players around the league, or free agents, or, you know, just had to sign, or he traded for guys that he thought could fit the line up and, um, and did all doing it was fine, you know, I mean, I, I, I put that pressure on myself. And most of our players who were established, they went out there and they took pride in the game. So they played hard anyway. I never had a problem with George. I never had a problem with the race. And I really, you know, I really enjoyed my time. there. Me. My you know, I was George came in, you know, talk out and he saw me and they walking around. What are you doing, champ? I'm a D-A-A-R-O. So he said, okay, all right. Just make sure you hit. Make sure you hit. So, no, me and George are fine. And the race is fine. And as a matter of fact, that was my last major league baseball club in the in the
1: United States, and for me, I went to Japan for two years. And uh, you're you doing a good job of helping me segue into questions here. Of course, you know you end up finishing your your professional career a couple of years in '88 and '89 with the Nippon Ham Fighters. Tell us a little bit about number one, what uh, what convinced you to take a job in Japan, and number two, about you know your experience down there. I know you I know you had a pretty good year in '88. Yeah, what happened
2: is you know at the in spring training, you know. Uh, way in the back, but not the way I use it. I don't know how the hell I did it. I think.
1: And um and I'm a cable for that and I went right into coaches right after that. Yeah, now listen, I thought you had a nice run man. You know, you obviously, you know, keep yourself involved in the game and uh you know, I wanna thank you for having some time today, Mike. man i hope to talk to you again
0: soon right, Brian, no definitely a great spot there with mike eastler and obviously you know we talk about you know his trials and tribulations and getting into big leagues and it took him almost 10 years to really get the opportunity to establish himself and of course he does a lot of great stuff you know outside of baseball since he's retired you know he mentioned that he was in the new york, new york mets organization before he got hurt you know, it's a situation where he could probably associate himself with another baseball team, but he also does a lot of things where he does clinics and he helps out a lot of kids, which I think is phenomenal to, for anybody that played the game to go out there and help the younger kids. So John Pielli Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. We're going to take our last break, and then we're going to finish up a solid program after this.
3: Are you searching for something different for your child's education? Consider Atlantic Christian School, where faith and quality education meet. Listen to what one of our students has to say about their experience at ACS. Atlantic Christian School is an amazing school. It has many different qualities that set it apart from public schools. It is
1: an extremely safe environment where students care and look after each other. There is a Bible class where students learn about God and grow closer to Him. In Bible class, we do Chop Shop. It is where we learn to dissect God's words so we can hear His direction For our lives. They have service projects where we learn to serve our Lord and community.
3: Atlanta Christian School is a wonderful place that changes the lives of the students that go there. Come learn about our new lower tuition rates at our open house every Wednesday from 8 a.m. to 1 p.m. at 391 Zion Road in Egg Harbor Township. Or enroll today. Visit us on the web at acseht.org or call 653 1199. Atlanta Christian School, where character, Christ, and community count. What's up, everybody? This is James Flippin. And Joey Baboots. We host a morning show together, and every morning we start up our cars and make the drive up to the studio. And, you know, we always see one or
0: two accidents along the way. We wanted to make sure our listeners know where to go for the best in
3: car care in South Jersey. That's right, James. Red Rose Body Shop. That's Red Rose Body Shop. Specializes in collision and framework. They're the best in South Jersey for paint and body work, unibody framework, free towing, and free estimates. So call today. 609-927-9454 and check out their website. www.redroseautobody.com Follow them on Facebook and Twitter. Red Rose Red Rose Body Shop, 2033 Ocean Heights Avenue, Egg Harbor Township, New Jersey, 609-927-9454. Red Rose Body Shop is South Jersey's collision specialist. 609-927-9454 or redrosebodyshop.com. Been in an accident? Take your car to the professionals at Red Rose Body Shop.
0: welcome back John Pielli passball show MTR Radio Network and we're gonna get into a kind of a disturbing story that you heard happening in regards to uh, Twitter and I mentioned this at the beginning of the story that I wanted to uh, touch on this a little bit because you know you know I think we're all associated in with the Twitter world in some way shape or form and I tell people all the time, Follow me at John underscore P. We always keep the interactive discussion on the program and then off the program. And I always tweet and stuff about major league baseball. I tweet my articles, bases empty blog, the whole thing. But one thing that ends up happening sometimes is a lot of people on Twitter end up getting a little bit too much into it and not necessarily competitive of like, Hey, I'm a fan of this team. So I hate this guy or, you know, I don't like these players on my team, but then, you know, it gets to a point where some Posts can be considered actual threats. And there was a guy on Twitter who of course got arrested a couple days ago out of Connecticut and he, you know, he assumed the Twitter handle Dan Tana. And a lot of Met fans, a lot of people that follow the show that are Mets fans or obviously uh know about his tweets as he's been a very active tweeter, you know, probably sent over about two hundred thousand tweets over the last, you know, three, four years. And here's my outlook on it, because I know it got a lot of play and, you know, it was obviously on the news, you know, in regards to New York, New Jersey, you know, metropolitan area of his arrest. And, you know, he was arrested for uh, some threatening tweets that he made towards the New York Mets organization and some that could be considered terroristic or, you know, in some way, you know, making people fear that he was going to cause an act of some sort of terror. And the unfortunate thing about it is, you know, from following the guy over the last several years, he seems like he's a guy that's all talk. He seems like a guy that's kind of harmless. And, and honestly, a lot of his views in regards to the New York Mets are probably views that pe- a lot of people disagree with. But those views in itself are not a crime. The guy has the right to go out there and post what he wants to if he doesn't like the moves that a, an organization that he follows ends up, you know, going for. I mean, if he's a Mets fan and he doesn't like Sandy Alderson's move as a general manager, he has the right to express that. If he doesn't want Terry Collins to be the manager of the New York Mets, he has the right to say that. If he doesn't like the way the team's constructed, he has the right to say that he doesn't like the team the way it's constructed. And he could take it up to a point. But, you know, unfortunately, some of his tweets got out. And the New York Mets organization, I think, Uh, Set off an investigation Which ends up with him getting arrested At his home in Connecticut And here's a couple of the tweets And I'm not going to get too into it Because you know I think a lot of this stuff Is just the guy kind of just speaking Behind his own microphone In in other words saying things in a way That he's probably not going to carry out I think he wanted to get a little laugh In some of the things that he was saying But some of the tweets is talking about You know stuff um, You know Skinning a general manager, owner, manager. You know, it's, tomorrow is Friday the 13th. Let's get a gang of us to wear Jason Voorhees mask to City Field and skin us a general manager, owner, manager. Uh, think of it. It will be the lead story on CNN. Mets fans kill the team owner, GM manager, before they kill us. Self-defense. Uh, what are some good ways to dispose of Wilpon, Alderson, and Collins? Any ideas? There will be a bloodbath at City Field tomorrow night. No Mets fan will get out alive if you have a seven-line T-shirt. Jason Voorhees doesn't care for plump-pumps. And, and, and these, these were some of the, obviously, the most dramatic of the guy's tweets. I mean, a lot of his tweets were kind of, and, and in my opinion, and a lot of people that are on Twitter, kind of tongue-in-cheek. They weren't really in a situation where you could take you know, him and anything he says as a kind of a terroristic threat. And unfortunately, sometimes, you know, people get a little overboard in what they say. And I'm going to say this. I, honestly, in defense of the guy, I think, I think he said some things that he probably didn't mean to say. And if he was speaking to somebody directly, he probably wouldn't have said some of the things and gone as overboard as he did in some of the things that he said via Twitter. But I, I do want to send a message out to everybody because, you know, think about it. How much of us are on Twitter? Just about everybody who associates yourself if you're a fan of any, you know, any sport, you're going to go out there and you're probably going to, and you're probably on Twitter and that goes out for the entertainment field too. And one of the main reasons that a lot of people want to be on Twitter is the interaction with celebrities, the interaction with athletes. And because celebrities and athletes are on this same medium that you really have, if you want to, or if they want to, you have a chance to actually have a conversation with them. If you say something and you want to, you know, flatter somebody, you know, maybe they thank you. If you say something that maybe they disagree with, maybe they'll disagree back with you. And that's the reason why a lot of people are on Twitter. You know, I'm on Twitter cuz I want to share, you know, what I do. I want to let people know about my show. I want to, you know, let them, you know, have the opportunity to read Basis Empty blog and I hope they like it. I hope everybody has had a chance to listen to one of my shows or to read one of my articles has as you know, at least given the impression that I know what I'm talking about. But, you know, people get on Twitter with the hopes that they could, you know, interact with celebrities. And some people do it with a way of, hey, you know what, if a guy has a bad game, I could go tell him what I think of him. And now that's getting on the borderline of crossing the line. It's not necessarily crossing the line, but you know what, These, these people probably shouldn't be in a position that you could go harass them at their own Twitter handle, especially from somebody that refuses to identify who they are. And, and that, that's probably the thing that bothers me the most when you got all these assumed Twitter handles going out there feeling they got the right to say whatever they want. If you're going to go out there and say whatever you want, be a man about it. Be a man and identify who you are. If, if, if I'm going to go out there and say something, I have the name John P. That's who I am. You know, there's no way you're going to go find me and, and realize that I'm somebody else. I am who I am. And that's the one thing that bothers me about Twitter. You know, you, you have the opportunity to go out there and say whatever you want, but all these cowards will go out there and not even identify who the hell they are. It's a, that's that's an embarrassment. Because if you're a professional athlete, if you're a celebrity, if you go out there and identify who you are, why can't the person that's going out there making insulting remarks or in some cases terror, terroristic threats can at least identify who the hell they are? I mean, it's kind of a pussy thing to me. You know, you go on Twitter you can't even identify who the hell you are. So as I digress here, as I try to take a second to calm myself down, we're going to get into something that I wanted to talk about a little while ago. And this is the history of the Buffalo Bisons. And the Buffalo Bisons, of course, are known right now as the AAA affiliate of the Toronto Blue Jays. And a lot of people don't even know that they actually go back as far as they do. And, of course, Mets fans will know that the Buffalo Bisons were their AAA affiliate from 2009 to 2012. And of course, you know, you you look at the way they go back they had several years of association with both the Cleveland Indians and the Pittsburgh Pirates, but some people won't don't even know that the the Bison's ha- have honestly been around forever. And this is a, this is a team that has actually been around since the late 1800s. They were a National League team, a Major League baseball team from 1879 to 1885. They became involved in minor league baseball for the first time in 1886, and after they were dropped from the National League, they stayed there until 1899 when they joined the Western League, and it was a distinct possibility that they could become a major league baseball team again when it was announced that the Western League was going to become the American League, and obviously we know what the American League is. Uh, You know, They were dropped to make room for another team and return to minor league baseball again. They stayed there from 1900 to 1970. And then they moved to Winnipeg, then Virginia, and then they ceased existence after the 1973 season. The Pittsburgh Pirates brought the Buffalo Bisons back for the 1979 season. Of course, like we mentioned before, the year that they won the World Series. That was their double-A club. They remained the double-A affiliate for the Pirates until the 1982 season when they took over as the double-A affiliate of the Cleveland Indians. After spending 83 and 84 as the Indians' double-A team, they became a triple-A team in the American Association for the Chicago White Sox. They've been a AAA team ever since. The Bisons were the AAA affiliate of the White Sox in 85 and 86 and then held the same position with the Cleveland Indians for the 1987 season. After that, they returned to the Pittsburgh Pirates organization, of course, as a AAA team and remained there from 1988 to 1994. They went back to the Indians organization for the 1995 season and managed to stay there all the way until the 2008 season. And, of course, the American Association folded after the 1997 season, and the Bisons joined the International League in 1998, and that's where they've been ever since. Of course, the Mets were the Mets' AAA affiliate for the next four seasons and now they're the property of the Toronto Blue Jays. The Bisons have been league champions six times. They beat the Rochester in 1934, Baltimore in 1936, Miami in 1957, Rochester again in 1961. Durham in 1998, and Richmond in 2004, they've played in a total of 10 championship series, and since 1998, they've won four division titles. So a little information there about the Buffalo Bison. And of course, we're going to get ourselves back into some World Series talk, and of course, this is the Passball Show World Series Preview Show, and I wanted to set it up to where we weren't talking about in the middle of the series because i think you know next week's show we're going to be either the series is going to be over or we're going to be pretty close to being over and there's going to be a lot more stuff to catch up on and talk about then you know in in regards to just uh you know what happened last night in a world series game and we know of course the past ball show uh you know once a week podcast can be heard saturday mornings from 10 to 12 there's also a bunch of different times that you could hear it throughout the week but uh, you know, a couple of things I wanted to get into about the World Series that I haven't touched on yet. We talked a little bit about Alan Craig to start the program, and Alan Craig is going to have a big impact on this series. He's replacing Matt Adams, a guy who did a good job. He was very admirable in the job that he did while he filled in for Alan Craig. But let's be honest, he's not Alan Craig. Alan Craig is certainly a guy that hits for a very high slugging percentage, a doubles and home run type of guy. Maybe he's not Albert Pujols, but listen, he is certainly a poor man's version of Albert Pujols, which ain't a knock on him whatsoever. And him coming into the lineup, getting himself back out there is going to give the St. Louis Cardinals a better opportunity to hit and certainly gives them a better presence in the middle of the batting order. Another thing I do want to touch on before we go: Clay Buchholz not getting a start in Game One of the series, and there's a possibility that he may miss the entire World Series. That's a big blow to the Boston Red Sox. They're going to go out there and start Felix DeBroy, which you know is not a bad option. He had a good year for the Red Sox. He did a pretty good job, and you know probably deserves to get an opportunity to start. But you know a guy that has not been you know lengthened. He's made a couple relief appearances in the postseason could find himself vulnerable in a spot where he's going to make a big start. And if you're the Red Sox, you're definitely going to count on your pitching, just like the Cardinals are going to count on the guys they have going out there. And like I mentioned in the beginning of the program, the pitching staff matched up against each other are fairly even. The starting rotations are exactly even. The Red Sox may have the advantage in the bullpen, but you know the starting rotations are pretty much on an even playing field. Now you put in DeBron, and listen, DeBron could go out there and throw eight shutout innings. You never know. He pitched a number of fine games for the Red Sox over each of the past two seasons. He's proven himself as an established starter. I would have gone with him over Ryan Dempster. So I think in that case, it's the good call. But you're looking at the Red Sox down a starting pitcher and down Clay Buckholz. And I think that's a big deal to look at, you know, in regards to what the Red Sox are going to be pitching without. Because Clay Buckholz at the beginning of this year, you know, as an all-star was the best pitcher in the American League before he got hurt. He missed three months, of course, and ends up coming back fairly strong. I know he struggled, like we mentioned earlier, against the Detroit Tigers, um, you know, in in the series in the ALCS. But you know, he gives them a better chance to win than Felix DeBron. And if he's healthy, you got to run him out there. Obviously, he's not, and they're gonna Red Sox are gonna rely on guys like John Lester and John Lackey, who have pitched very well in the postseason. Jake Peavy, I know, also struggled against the Detroit Tigers. But you're looking at a situation where, hey, maybe. Clay Buchholz not being in there could be a big you know, thing that's going to hurt the Boston Red Sox here, and you never know. Maybe a new star is born. Maybe Felix DeBronk goes out there, and we're talking about you know, on Saturday morning when you're listening to me, and you already know that maybe he went out there and threw seven, eight shutout innings or something like that. So you, know, you never know how it's going to turn out. Like I said, the key to this series, I think, is going to be what team's bullpen kind of uh, locks it down. Because you know, you know with the new age of baseball, starting pitchers not going deep into games, you know, more games are determined by what happens in the bullpen than not. And it's certainly been a case in the postseason where teams that have had good bullpens have, have had a better chance and succeeded. You're looking at the two teams that are meeting in the World Series that have had the two best bullpens in the postseason. And you're going to need to see that continue as we go into the, this World Series here. I do think it's going to be an interesting thing to see what John Farrell does whether he sits David Ortiz or he sits Mike Napoli or maybe does one of each for each one of the one of the three games. You never know how it works out. But once again, John Pieli, Passball Show, MTR Radio Network. Uh, well, thank you guys for tuning in. Uh, we'll definitely be back with you next week right here on the MTR Radio Network.
3: P.L.A.'s show your I got caught